As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Going to continue our series in the book of Acts, where we're reimagining the future of the church by looking back at our roots. Um, And I love that song, God of Revival. Um, we, We believe very much in a real way that that what God has done in the past, that he will do again. Um, We believe that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to finish the Great Commission every bit as much as the original disciples and apostles did to begin the Great Commission. So we're really going to focus in on that this morning. I want to begin with a question for everybody in the room. I want you to really think about this. How do you relate to the person of the Holy Spirit? How familiar are you with how the Spirit moves and operates in your life? Now, depending on your background, you may answer that a little bit differently, but that you answer the question is vital to how you experience growth in your spiritual life and intimacy and experience with God. Now, J.D. Greer, who is a Baptist pastor, speaking on the Holy Spirit, says this, Christians tend to gravitate to one of two extremes regarding the third person of the Trinity. Some pursue experience in the Spirit apart from the Word. They listen for voices in their hearts or seek signs from God in the heavens. They always seem to be talking about what God said to them through a stirring in their spirit or in a strange confluence of circumstances. And we affirm that God speaks. Others, however, seek to know and obey the word without any interaction or real dependence on the Spirit. These Christians might know who the Holy Spirit is, and then he floats around in their heart somewhere. They might even know that he produces spiritual fruit in their lives, but they relate to him similar to how I relate to my pituitary gland. I know it's in there somewhere, and that's, that it's necessary somehow for bodily growth and life, but I have no real interaction with it. I've never spoken to or heard From my pituitary gland, its work remains invisible and undetected, even though I know it's essential. But the Spirit and the Word work inseparably. That's what we're passionate about here. One without the other leads to dysfunctional Christianity. Just as a toaster without a plug is useless, biblical knowledge apart from the Spirit is impotent or powerless. So... There are, now these are going to be characters, and they're caricatures for a reason, right? There are two extremes in American Christianity, right? You have word Christians over here who know the word flawlessly, frontwards, backwards. They love words like exegesis, right? And then, right? And then you've got, you know, spirit Christians over there, and they are full of zeal, and they are full of excitement. But God's design with the spirit is people that know the word have the spirit of God breathe on the word in such a way that they actually begin to live it out, right? And those that lean more on the spirit side of the equation, that their experiences are rooted and grounded in scripture. So um, if you have friends on one of those two extremes or you find yourself in one of those camps, God's design is to bring both of those together. And that is the reason that he has sent the Spirit into the world. 
It's been famously said that without the Spirit, you dry up, and without the Word, you blow up. But the goal of the Christian life is to be full of both God's Word and God's Spirit. This morning, we're going to look at the birth of the church. We're going to look at God's promises fulfilled as he sends the Holy Spirit into the world to give birth to the church. And if you get anything, I want you to get this. Pentecost is the floor and not the ceiling for the church, right? The outpouring of the Spirit is the foundation and the life source that we have for a life of intimacy and power and expectation with God, right, that began at Pentecost, but, but most of us can functionally leave, um, believe and live our lives as if, um, you know, Pentecost was the highlight, and then it's just this slow decline till Jesus returns, don't believe that at all. As we go throughout the book of Acts, what we're going to see is an invitation from God to come and to experience more. Pentecost is the starting place of the church and not the finish line. So what we want to do is to just use that toaster analogy. We want to plug into the power source this morning and receive fresh power and fresh revelation from God. So we're going to do that. As we look at the book of Acts, we're going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 2. Normally we stand, but this is a longer passage. Really would rather you zoom in on scripture and just allow God to begin to stir your heart towards faith. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues just as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, Under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God in all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does it mean? And we all need to ask that question this morning. What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, would you pray with me? Father, so much we have already stepped into the promise of Pentecost. 
that your heart for the nations and your heart for individuals have already been expressed here, that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth and the depths of our hearts, even us. Lord, I thank you that you have not withheld your own son and you have been unrestrained in your generosity towards us by sending your very spirit to take up residence inside of us. I pray that you would help us in these moments to experience the the power and the promise and the blessing of Pentecost. I pray that it wouldn't be contained to one individual life, but it would spread into this room and out into our city that you would bring revival and hope. Lord, we believe and trust that you are always doing more than we can ask or imagine or even think, even in the moments that we disbelieve and even in the moments where we doubt, even in the moments where we question. But we rest confident in your desire to bless your children with yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So every time we come up on a passage like this, it's it's easy to take one of two paths. You can look at this passage as it's a piece of abstract history with lots of biblical lessons that were meant to draw out, or you can look at it as an invitation, as a personal invitation from God to experience the power of Pentecost for yourself. I would much rather you view this as an invitation. Um, As we look at the day of Pentecost, it it functions for us to provoke us to ask more from God, to trust Him more, and to step out in faith. The big idea that we're going to look at this morning is, as followers of Jesus, our invitation is to live in the now power and blessing of Pentecost. Pentecost is not just about the birth of the church, but it's about the revival of individuals and the revival of you and I. So we're going to begin by unpacking the significance of Pentecost. Verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, and some translations might say, when Pentecost had fully come, Now, there's a sense there of arrival and a sense of expectation. It's as if God is uh, a father that is eager to pour out gifts upon his children. Um, We kind of do this in my household. So Christmas is an absolutely gigantic deal at our house. Like it begins weeks and months in advance and um, probably we're getting ready to put out the Christmas decorations as we speak. Who, Who cares about Halloween, it's great, but I mean, it's not Christmas, right? Everybody else thinks I've just blasphemed, but that's okay. Come over to my side. Yeah. So, every, every single Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, we have certain rituals that we take place in our house. And the kids, we, we, we stay up late and we enjoy each other. And even though our kids are, uh, many of them are adults now, um, they can't come down on Christmas morning till mom and dad come and get them. And for one reason, that's because when they were younger, um, we used to stay up and have a conflict with one another, or known as putting Christmas toys together, whichever you want. We would do that, and we, we needed to sleep in a little bit so we could recover, and we had them wait at the top of the stairs. And Jen will always play this game, Mother May I, and they will at, literally ask Mother May I take two steps, and they'll come on down the steps all the way till they get around the corner. Now, in, <laughs> in younger days, we did that for them, 
but now we do it for us. And there's a sense of anticipation for us. Because listen, we know what's under the tree, right? (laughs) We know what they are about to encounter. There's a sense of anticipation. And that is God's heart for all of his children in Pentecost, right? It's not some scary event, but it it is a father waiting to give good gifts to his children, just like on Christmas morning. So it's a sense of arrival. God has been working all of human history to this point where he's eager to pour out his spirit on his people. Now, Pentecost is the Old Testament celebration of harvest. You could read about it on your own in Leviticus chapter 23. It's a celebration of the first fruits and the things that God has provided. It took place 50 days after Passover. And People from all over the world would come in for Pentecost, and I would love to say that it was because they wanted to celebrate the harvest, but honestly, on the Jewish calendar, like this was prime season, like this was the best weather time of the year, so people are coming in from everywhere. So I want you to think about Pentecost next week when the temperatures are in the uh, high 50s or, you know, Uh, low 60s in the morning like it's excellent weather everybody's here from every nation under heaven so there's a sense of anticipation and a sense of harvest um, a, a sense of anticipating fruit and celebration that's taking place on the day of Pentecost and there's diversity from all over the world and we can anticipate as we step into the promise and the blessing of Pentecost that there will be harvest for us, that there will be fruit for us, that there will be diverse kinds of mission from all over the world that emanates from our very church. Do you believe that? If you don't, I, I hope that God sends his spirit in such a way that that becomes a resounding amen among us. So that's the significance of Pentecost. Now, my second point is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You can picture this. Lee did an excellent job last week. There are 120 people. They are described as being of one mind or of one accord. They are in one place with one passion, one focus to see God's kingdom come. They're waiting. They've been instructed personally by the resurrected Christ for 40 days. They saw him taken up to heaven, and they're waiting with a sense of anticipation for the promise of the Father, and then suddenly, and with no warning, God begins to pour out His Spirit. And there are three specific manifestations that are visible and demonstrable. They are visible and audible sounds of what God is doing in his people. So a sound came from heaven. The first manifestation is a sound from heaven. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now the word here is of a violent or a strong wind. It's more like a hurricane or a tornado. So they're sitting there. They're praying. They are in a spirit of unity and prayer. And suddenly there's this sound that fills the room. 
Sounds like a freight train. I know if you were in Jonesboro in 2020, you can't forget the visual images that you saw. You know, uh, I remember one particular that came from Premier Auto where you saw the tornado coming and you saw things just blowing all around. So it's the sound of the wind, but the wind's not there. So most of the time when you interview someone that survived a tornado, they don't actually talk about the funnel cloud itself. They're talking about the sound. There, there's this sense that the sound fills the room. And instead of a, a sound of dread, this is a sound of God coming and God breathing life. This violent wind is bringing life. The, the Greek word for the spirit here is pneuma, and it means spirit and wind and breath, and it has some nuance. Now, for us, we might kind of freak out a little bit, but immediately, if you were from a Jewish background, you would begin to think about this idea of the wind of God or the breath of God. You would think back to the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel 37 in particular, Ezekiel 37 is this vision of a valley of dry bones. Are are you guys familiar with this? All right, so you got a valley of dry bones. And God provokes his prophet to ask the question, can these bones live again, right? And he says, sovereign Lord, only you know. So he's looking at a valley of dry bones. Suddenly in his vision, he begins to see muscles and cartilage and all of these things and skin kind of filling these dead bones. And there's still lifeless bodies that are laying in this particular valley. And God asks the question again, can these bones live? And I want to read to you Ezekiel 37 verses 9 and 10. This is God's answer. Then he said to me, and this is God, prophesy to the breath or prophesy to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, that's all over the earth, Spirit of God, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So this valley of dry bones, we sing about this song, that God is moving by his Spirit changing a valley of dry bones into an army, right? They stand up, lifeless, hopeless. And the implications for this is absolutely massive for the people of God. First and foremost, the most amazing thing that will ever take place is if you have received the Spirit of God, if you've called on Jesus for salvation, you were the valley of dry bones. You were in that picture. I was in that picture. He breathed His very Spirit into us and moved us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's a picture of what's taking place, but that's not the only picture. Every time that we see um, just Pentecost described in Scripture, it is this invitation for us to ask for more. Not only is there this promise of spiritual life when we're spiritually dead, but it's also the promise that God would send the Spirit on the spiritually dead places inside of us. Right, So that when Pentecost comes and becomes a passion for God's people, we don't sit by idly as the storms and the trials of life come and we don't live disconnected from him. We cry out to him and he sends his spirit and he brings dead things to life. And whether that's dreams that have died and given way to disappointment or dry places in your soul that have been neglected, 
the invitation of Pentecost is to come and to ask and to receive fresh wind from heaven and allow him to bring new spiritual life. Whether that's moving you from spiritual death to spiritual life or from spiritual apathy to spiritual passion and engagement. The missing ingredient almost always in our lives is fresh fillings that come from the Spirit. So where do you need the Spirit of God to come and bring new life to you? His invitation this morning is to come and receive life. The second manifestation of the Spirit that we see here is tongues of fire. Look at verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, you can imagine the scene. They're praying. There's this sound of mighty rushing wind, hurricane-like sounds coming into the room. And on each one of them are the appearance of a tongue of fire. Now, in Scripture, fire represents purity, holiness, being set apart, In the throne room of God, in Revelation chapter 4, there are seven torches that are around his throne. And it says those are the seven spirits of God. doesn't mean that there's seven spirits, but that's the number of perfection and completeness. This is the fullness of the spirit that's coming to rest on God's church. This means he's not holding anything back, right? He's inviting you to have all of him. This is the fullness of the Spirit that comes. Revelation chapter 1, there's a picture of Jesus. He's dressed as the Ancient of Days. His hair is white with wisdom, but what are his eyes like? They're full of fire. They are drawing people to himself. And this fire of the Spirit, this Spirit of holiness, it draws us to Jesus without us being afraid. Right? And that's massive. This is this invitation. God, by taking up residence inside of his people, is saying, I declare you righteous. Right? He's coming inside to live inside of you. He doesn't go into places that are unworthy, but he declares us righteous on the basis of Jesus. And it comes in like a refiner's fire, and it burns away the dross. So he comes and he purifies us and he cleanses us. But not only that, the fire of the Spirit, we sang about it this morning, lights the flame. There is a fire that's in us. Jeremiah in the Old Testament, when the Spirit comes upon him, he says there's a fire that's burned up, you know, it's in my bones. Have you ever had an experience with the Spirit like that? If you haven't, that is the invitation this morning that he births an undying love in his people by virtue of the sending of the Holy Spirit. So his fire comes. Now, the implication for this for us is he delights to change us, right? He's sent, he's so committed to our sanctification or becoming like Jesus that he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And there is a massive difference between us trying to change us and partnering with the Holy Spirit to change us, right? And, I, and I, I, Now, there is effort involved. There are words like mortification and like putting sin to death. 
you know? But a lot of times, we try to change in our own strength. We just draw moral boundaries and say, we're not going to do this thing, or we're not going to do this. When, when the invitation from Scripture is to walk in the Spirit so that you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. It's a, a fullness of the Spirit issue that we're supposed to learn to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. So God promises to meet his people by coming and dwelling in them. And he promises to pour out his spirit as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. His spirit's going to come and his spirit is going to renew us and refine us. And when we are singing songs like God of Revival, the thing that we're asking is, Lord, would you send your spirit to purify us? Right? The first step of revival is always a step away from the kingdom of this world and a step towards the kingdom of God. So it's, it's this movement where we're following him and experiencing life. The third manifestation of the Spirit in this passage is speaking in tongues or other languages. Look at verse 4 and the second part of verse 11. Verse 4 says, and they were all, everyone, A-L-L, means everyone in the room, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then this is the response of the crowd. Verse 11b, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what we see in this passage is the gift of tongues being given to the church and it's missionary in nature. People, there is this prayer meeting that's going on. They are filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak out of their own mouths as the Spirit gives them utterance. This idea of proclaiming the mighty works of God. And there's no interpretation needed at this moment. It's different than what's taking place in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. There's different use of the gifts of tongues in Scripture. But this one is missionary in nature. The people are perplexed because they hear Galileans that are bearing testimony to the mighty acts of God. And God does this. And it's very interesting because Peter a few verses later, begins to stand up and he speaks in Aramaic. It's not as if they do not understand Aramaic. He preaches the whole sermon. He's not speaking in tongues. This gift of tongues is to let the whole crowd know that everyone can get in on this, right? That there are no outcasts, that all nations are welcome. This, is, this isn't just for the Jews. This is going to go to all the nations so that they can experience the power and the glory of Jesus. Now, I've seen uh, and heard many stories of the gift of tongues being used in a missionary context like this. But this is the one that I know the best, so I'll share it with you. So when my wife and I were newly married, we went to a conference called Celebration. So we had a lot of different churches that got together, that partnered together with mission, a lot like what we do with Advance. And we would gather every 4th of July weekend in Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, at Jerry Falwell's house, as we used to call it. And we were gathered. I'm sure he would have turned over in his grave if he knew what we were doing there. But anyway, um, (laughs) we were at Liberty University. There were this group of people. We were coming together to worship God, praise him, spent entire weekend together as families, just encountering God together. And uh, in this one particular con- uh, conference, there was 
a team from Wales. They were there uh, looking at joining this particular group of churches, and they were looking in to see if this was a, a, a good place to partner for life and mission. And there was a young lady, and she was on the worship team, and I, I think you'd have to know this, this is a big gymnasium, and I think she's just off in a corner somewhere kind of preparing for the session, and she happens to be like praying and um, singing in tongues, and the team from Wales, she doesn't know they're there, walks behind her, and uh, it was during one of the sessions they came up, and basically they heard this young lady, unbeknownst to them, singing and praying in perfect Welsh. And as they came to the stage, they were uh, aware that this was a sign from God that they were to partner together for mission. And that's exactly what's going on in Acts chapter 2. There's this confirmation, and this is a speaking of a known language. As you look at, it's a little bit different in the book of 1 Corinthians, but this is a known language. So, the, 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 tongue, the gift of tongues here is missionary in nature. So now I want to move on to the implications of Pentecost for us here today. The first implication is that the harvest is here, right? Pentecost is about the harvest. That first Pentecost Sunday, 3,000 people were added to the church. Um, The gospel was proclaimed. People met Jesus. So the truth is, Jesus is always proclaiming that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And walking with Jesus this much in my life, I would say that's 100% true, right? Uh, There's nothing wrong with the harvest, but um, there's a way that we need to partner with him. And um, the more that we seek the Spirit and walk in a fullness of the Spirit, the more that we will partner with him and be able to see where he's actually at work in the world Remember the promise from Acts 1.8. It says, you will receive power from the Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a, a promise statement from God. But the power of Pentecost is for witness. Now, in a court case, a witness doesn't have to know every single thing that there is to know about everything, right? They just have to bear witness about what they have seen and heard and experienced. And if I could say anything, we spent months on spiritual gifts. The greatest gift that you've been given by God for evangelism is your own story. That is God's gift to you so that you can bear witness to him and proclaim him to everyone that is around you. J.D. Greer helpfully says this. He says, Jesus birthed the Christian movement by sending his spirit like a mighty rushing wind into his disciples. The place where they met shook with God's power, and as a result, they turned the world upside down. The first church was not primarily a study group, a self-discovery seminar, or a building program. It was a mighty movement of the Spirit that propelled Jesus' followers into the whole world preaching the gospel. Acts is the story of disciples following that spirit, being filled by that spirit, and trying to keep up, but feeling like a kite in a hurricane, right? So the harvest is now. In a few moments, we're going to ask the spirit to come and to fill us all. Where he is going to take us 
is out to the margins, out to the places where we wouldn't naturally go. And he's going to order our steps so that people hear Jesus. The second implication is for us to continually receive our inheritance through the Holy Spirit. The, the book of Ephesians talks about the Spirit being the down payment of our inheritance. It's the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our inheritance as the people of God. Now, I don't know, this may be a funny illustration, but if someone gifted you right now 100,000 shares of Amazon stock, right, which would be about 12.7 million dollars worth of stock. If you knew nothing about Wall Street, if you knew nothing about the Dow Jones, if you knew nothing about dividends or how stocks split, you would instantly become a student of that, right? Our inheritance is so much greater than that. Our inheritance is God himself. Right? And so it would behoove us, as the, I said behoove, that's great, isn't it? To receive and become students of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to say this over and over again. Don't let crazy, non-biblical, nonsensical Christians, because they've done this poorly, steal your inheritance. Right? That's not what we're about. But the Word of God says that we are here as spirit people to receive His Spirit. Gordon Fee wonderfully says this. He says, Our our theology and experience of the Spirit must be more interwoven if our experience life of the Spirit is to be more effective. So if you want to be more effective, and I'm not assuming everybody does, to be honest. If you want to be more effective, your theology of the Spirit must meet your experience of the Spirit, right? Those those things must go together. A theology without experience is a defective theology. An experience without any theology, um, you won't know the God that that you love and the message that you're called to proclaim. So we need to see those things woven together more. So we're setting aside time this week. We're having a week of prayer. We're inviting our entire church to pray and ask for personal revival in their own souls. The places where you're thirsty, the places where you're weak, the places where you're dry. We're trying to make structure so that you can be revived by God himself. Some, and we're inviting the whole church, if, if you can, to fast with us. We're going to have a a prayer meeting in this room. It'll be our first one, and we're going to do this every month. It's going to be this Wednesday from 6.30 to 8 p.m. in this very room. And we're asking that people would consider fasting. You can fast all three days from food. You could fast one meal a day for food. You can fast one day with us for food. But the the point of fasting, if you're not able to fast food, it it probably would be more helpful to fast entertainment or social media or something that has your attention. Fasting is a way of saying no to something so that you can say yes and make room for something better. Most of the time, I, I don't think it's that we're opposed to more of God. We just don't have room in our lives for more of God. And so we're setting aside time so that we can experience more of him. And then we're going to gather in here in this room 
Wednesday evening from 6.30 to 8. And first and foremost, we're going to be here to worship him. We're going to proclaim the mighty acts of God. And we're going to minister to him. But every time that we've done this, we've done this in several contexts with leaders. Every time we come to minister to him, he actually comes and ministers to us. And he begins to lavish love upon us. And he begins to meet us and change us. Every day this week, Monday through Friday, this is going to be transformed into a prayer room. And by transformed, I mean you're going to have music playing. <laughs> That's a joke. Yeah, thanks for laughing. Um, we're, we're, we're setting aside time so that we can meet with God. We'd love to see some of you. But this morning, our inheritance is to come and to receive the Spirit. Now, we all receive the Spirit when we're born again, so if you place your faith in Jesus, you have the Spirit. But Ephesians 5.18 is this present continuous exhortation to be continually filled with the Spirit. Uh, as we go throughout the book of Acts, the way that the church was meant to pick leaders in the church, it says pick and choose men or women that are full of the Holy Spirit. Like That's the, that's the requirement. So there's something about being filled with the Spirit. Now, I, I want to position you to receive from the Spirit. I want to describe a few people from church history's experience with the Spirit. Now listen, you're not always going to have these experiences, but you should have some of these experiences. Revivalist Charles Finney described receiving a fullness of the Spirit as being baptized in liquid love. So from the very throne of God himself, he begins to pour out his spirit on his people. And the sense when you walk away is knowing that you're his beloved. Right? He pours out his spirit and it feels like love. For others, it feels like joy. Pastor D.L. Moody had an experience of joy so deep, and this is what I need in my life, so deep that he had to ask God to stop or he thought he would die from this overwhelming joy that came from inside of them. And these people, if you read their background, they're not particularly charismatic kinds of believers. These are everyday, ordinary kinds of folks. This guy's definitely not a charismatic. Puritan Thomas Goodwin says this. He describes receiving the Spirit as a seal of assurance. He describes it as the kiss of the Father. So he says, imagine... A father walking hand in hand with their small child. And then suddenly the father picks up the child and begins to shower them with hugs and kisses and pulls them near. Now, their status as a child never changed, but their experience of being a child absolutely was changed and marked in that moment. And listen, we need those moments because life is difficult Right? We need those moments because there are going to be things that you walk through where you need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you belong to him and that his delight is in you. That's what receiving the Spirit is all about. So, yes, it's not as if we do not have the Spirit, but he's delighted to continually pour out his Spirit. So, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to go ahead and invite Aaron and the band to come up. And I want you to... Only if you want to. God's not going to force anybody to do anything they do not want. 
And I've been in meetings like this before where I've decidedly told God that I did not want anything that he had to do with that. So, rest assured, God will have his way eventually. We want to take a posture of receiving, whatever that looks like for you. For some people, that's bowing your head very quietly. For some people, that's holding out your hands almost like a a reception, like I'm open to you. Um, The more and more we, we tie the giving of the Spirit to God himself and his character um, some of you that describe yourselves as charismatic with seatbelts can take your seatbelt off a little bit. <laughs> you can feel free to move about the cabin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just trying to make this easy for you guys. Um, because this isn't norm- it's normative in Scripture. It's normative in every chapter in the book of Acts. It's normative in all of the epistles. And it's supposed to be normative for us. So, take a posture of receiving whatever that is, and I'm going to invite the Spirit to come, that Aaron's going to lead us into a song that you should know well so that you can pour out your praise on him so that you can continue to receive. Um, but there's, a, there's this key phrase in the Gospel of Luke for children is to simply ask. He knows what you need before you ask, but he delights to have us ask so that as he meets us, that he receives the glory and he gets to see the look on your face and in your heart as you receive. Holy Spirit, come. We ask that you would fill us with love That you would fill us with power. That you would fill us with joy. That you would fill us with peace. That you would fill us with patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. But I pray that you would fill us with a sense of intimacy. That we know you and that we have been known by you. Lord, we long to be present to you, present with you. Pray that you would seal each of your children with your kiss. God, please help us not to just go through the motions or God, we want to be different. We want to live for you. We want to live for your kingdom and your purposes. Please free us from small dreams. Lord, we want to be radically generous with our money. We want to be radically generous with our time. We want to be radically generous with our love for one another. We want your love to flow in us and through us. Father, we believe that you are a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And the best gift is yourself. So we continually receive from you. Empower us to be the people that you've created us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.